0: you have a Bible with you, you can turn there to Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can use your phone or Kindle or anything else that you have with you. And I say to you, hear the word of God. You're running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would um, quicken those who, who, who are dead, maybe, in their trespasses and sin and raise them to new life, even now through the preaching of your word. I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things, amen and amen. So how about that last line I just read, (laughs) hello. (laughs) We're gonna talk about that, of course, Um, but I thought before we get into that, it'd be helpful for me to just give you a review, a reminder of why I preach the way I preach. And by that, I mean how I pick what I pick and how we do what we do. Is years ago, probably 20, it was over 20 years ago, um, my wife and I were assessed by a different Presbyterian denomination and they asked us, we passed I guess, and they said, we want you to go plant a church in downtown Seattle, Capitol Hill. And you know, you have to raise money, you have to do all these things, and, and we, apparently the assessment was good because we did plant the church, and it worked, and we were able to raise the money and everything, except there's one thing that I think the assessors overlooked. What I, what I felt like they, they, they overlooked was preaching. You see, we arrived here to start a new church, and I think I had only preached 10 times in my whole life. And if you haven't preached, it basically feels like final exam week every week, right? You finish, like you finish now, and you immediately start thinking about the next one, and, and you start trying to think of like what creative things should I preach, and what should I do, and, and I was going crazy when we first started and finally I figured out, you know what I need to do? instead of trying to figure out creative series and different topics for every week, I just need to start going through books of the Bible. And so that's what I started to do, whether it's a book of the Gospels or whether it's book in the Old Testament or whether it's a New Testament, and by preaching through books of the Bible or at least big chunks of books of the Bible, that gave me it, it did two things for me. One, it meant that I didn't have to think about what was coming next. I didn't have to be creative. I just knew that the next thing is the next thing. Now, what it also did was it made me or or kept me from avoiding passages that I never would have picked. In other words if i had my choice i would skip a lot of passages that i come across in the in the bible because they're they're uncomfortable they're they're either uncomfortable in what they imply or they're uncomfortable in what they say and yet the reason we go through books is so i tell you that um now because oftentimes you know you'll preach a sermon whether it's me or samuel and and someone will feel picked on they'll say you knew i was coming today and that's why you preach that and it's not it's just, it's the way things roll out. So we're going to look at today, today is one of those, quote, hard passages. It's one of those difficult passages, right? Because you have to try to make sense of the Apostle Paul ending his thought by saying, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. People have spent a lot of time trying to, to, to translate that and trying to figure out what he actually meant so it doesn't mean what it says, In other words, a a big strand of interpretation says what he was really getting at here was that he wishes that they wouldn't go to church anymore because Deuteronomy 13 says that a eunuch can't enter the assembly of God. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's really upset. And it came out. Whether it's clean anger, right? Remember if you were here for last week or or it's reprocessed anger, he's, he's upset at something. And this passage always reminds me of, of years ago when I first became a Christian, I started listening to a guy named Tony Campolo. And if you don't know Tony Campolo, you, know, you, you may, may or may not disagree with him. He's very political, but if nothing else, he's entertaining. And I remember years ago, he was preaching to thousands of people, and he was making the case for the fact that thousands of children every day die of starvation. And he's making that. He's making that case, and he's just driving that home. And then almost out of nowhere, and he says, thousands and thousands of children every day are dying of starvation, and you don't give a blank about it. And he cussed. He used the word. My my wife is always afraid that I'm actually going to do it. I'll be honest. I've come close a few times. But he uses the word, a four-letter word. And then everyone's like, you could hear the crowd go, Oh! And then he follows it up by saying, and you're more concerned with the fact that I just said blank than those children are dying. And then they all go, woo. You see the, what he did to them? He actually put things in perspective for them. And when you read a passage like this, it, it actually, what makes this passage, at least for me, difficult, is not the fact that Paul tells his opponents he wishes they would go emasculate themselves. What is more difficult is what would bring the Apostle Paul to a point of frustration that he would feel the need to say that? Or what would make him so frustrated that he couldn't help himself but say that? Or what would make him so angry that he actually left it in there? Remember, this is a letter. He could have scratched it out. Because I'm sure he said that. And I, he usually, they usually use an amanuensis or a secretary that was taking these things down. And Paul said that. And I can imagine the guy looked up and said, you want me to write that last part? Write it down. So Paul is upset. And the, the, what we're going to do today is not look at what he said so much and, and get sort of wrapped around the axle and try and explain away what he said. What I think is more important about this passage is why he said it. Why is Paul so frustrated? Why is Paul so angry that he would make a statement that clearly is the most rude, socially unacceptable statement, at least that he makes in the whole New Testament? Why would he do that? And the answer, I think, is pretty simple. What's the problem that Paul is addressing? That has been addressing over and over and over again in the book of Galatians. It's what I'm going to call treatment-resistant legalism. Or treatment-resistant self-righteousness. Remember, many of you know I used to be a drug rep, and one of the big problems, at least in neuroscience, with things like bipolar and depression is you talk to a doctor, and they say, I have this patient, and he has treatment-resistant depression, or he has treatment-resistant bipolar. In other words, no matter what I throw at this patient, he or she just doesn't seem to get better. And to this point in the book of Galatians, Paul has thrown every single thing he can at the Galatians to try and get them to see that it's Jesus plus nothing, That equals everything. And that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Remember last week's passage, he drew a line in the sand. He said basically there's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who rely on Jesus to save them from their sins and only Jesus or people who rely on their own works. That's it. Which one are you going to be? And so now he follows that up and he's in some ways is giving a backhanded address. He's commenting on the people who are teaching this kind of stuff. So we're going to look at three things about treatment-resistant legalism this morning. Basically, we're going to talk about what it does, first of all. And by that, I mean what it does to people personally, but also what it does to to the church corporately. We're going to look at where it comes from. Where does it come from? Paul addresses that. And finally, we're going to look at how it ends. So we're going to look at what it does, where it comes from, and how it ends. So first, what it does. Look at verses 7 and 9. So Paul basically says in verse seven he says you're running well who hindered you from obeying the truth and then in verse nine he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump so what paul's saying here one of paul's favorite metaphors is is a running metaphor or race metaphor he uses it in a lot of his letters and he you're either running well or you're not running well and he says to the galatians you are running well that 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 he came and he preached the gospel of free grace to them and they believed the gospel of free grace and they were freed not only from their sins but from the guilt of their sins the power and they were running the race and they were running well and he says but who, someone came along now they're not running well and he asks them who hindered you and in greek that the word it literally means who tripped you up and, and it, it's it's the language of cheating really that in the Olympics back in the day, you know, back in, in Paul's day, the way they would run 400 meters, they would run out to a pole and run back. They didn't have a track. And the language is, is the, the person who's running out and you're running beside somebody and they put their foot out and trip you up. He says, who tripped you up? What happened to you that you're not running like this anymore? And the, the, the answer, we don't have the answer as far as a person, but we know how self-righteousness trips us up. We know how self-righteousness hinders us personally. It hinders us personally because if you are relying on self-righteousness in order to be acceptable to God or other people, you can never rest. And you always have to be vigilant and be looking out to make sure you don't screw up. You always have to be looking around you. Whether it's, it's looking, looking to God in hopes that He loves you, or it's looking around to other people and comparing yourself to other people. Now, if you've ever been a swimmer or a runner, what do coaches tell you to do if you're in that lane? If you want to win, do they say, okay, if you want to win, Tommy, what I want you to do is on every stroke, I want you to check the other lanes to make sure how the other people are doing. No, you, you, they tell you to, to keep your eye on the price. Just you run the race that you've been called to run, or you swim the race that you've been called to swim. And Paul says, You have been, you were running well. You were freed from your sins. You weren't spending all of your time trying to pr- make yourself acceptable to God or even acceptable to other people who hindered you. So, personally, what does is, what is, uh, legalism or self righteousness do to us? Basically, it makes us miserable, and it keeps us from actually being free you can you can either be, base your your salvation and your life on your own works and your own goodness or you can base it on the fact that jesus has freed you up you can either struggle your whole life to be free or you can realize that because of the, the cross of jesus now i'm free to struggle and it really doesn't matter what other people are doing It really doesn't matter and so that leads though for, on one hand the way that, that self-righteousness sort of hinders us or trips us up personally it always bleeds into the corporate life of the church or, or the workplace even or any other place. How, is that, how, is it, how does that end up being a problem? Look at verse 9. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he's using a, a, a common proverb there that, that everyone would have known back then. Everyone knows now. I don't, I'm not a cook, but I know that a little bit of yeast right, eventually multiplies and, and fills a whole loaf of bread and that kind of thing or yogurt, whatever it is you're making. And what is his point here? What is the problem with self-righteousness? Even personal self-righteousness is that it always bleeds over into the corporate body. And I think the reason for it is this, is that we as human beings cannot help but evangelize with regard to, to the thing that has saved us or the thing that we're relying on to save us or the thing that we think has changed our life. If something changes your life, you can't help but tell other people about it. You want to tell other people about it. Just ask someone who's ever been vegan, or on the keto diet, or the paleo diet, or done CrossFit, right? And, and things like, we just wanna tell people, right? I'm, I'm doing this diet, you have to do it. I lost 15 pounds, you have to hear about this. You wanna do it, you gotta do it. And you're they're constantly talking about it. And that bleeds over into corporate life. So when people now imagine in the context of the church, where someone thinks, you know, God is really pleased with me because I don't watch certain kind of movies. I need to tell other people about this. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And so you start telling people, you can't watch these movies, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. Well, it doesn't go over very well. And what happens in those contexts when people don't really buy what you're selling? Well, then we tend to complain about it, right? So we're either trying to sell the thing that has changed our life, or we're complaining about the fact that other people don't get it like we do. So let me give you an example of how that happens in church sometimes. Imagine that, that you have come across some kind of music that you are certain God loves. That, that it comes from a certain period in history and it's played with a, only a certain kind of instrument and you are sure that this is the kind of music once and for all that Jesus loves more than anything else. Now it's always interesting to me in the context of church that the music that God loves is almost always the music that I happen to love. Isn't that interesting? But nonetheless... And so you go and you tell the leadership, we need to start doing this kind of music in church. And the leadership says, well, yeah, it's not really contextual. It's not kind of this. It's not kind of that. And then you get upset because they're not doing it. And then what do you do? Then you start complaining to your friends. Can you believe they're not doing this? Can you believe they're not doing this? And next thing you know, the church is divided. This happens every week, by the way, in the United States. Churches divide over this issue of music. Why? Because one self-righteous person decided that it was the most important thing in the world. So even though it's personal self righteousness, ultimately it can bleed into the rest of the body, and it affects the rest of the body. Paul says, "You were running well. Who hindered you?" Don't forget that a little bit of leaven, a little bit of self righteousness eventually affects everyone here. So words he go from there. He basically goes from there to to say not only what it how it affects us, or what it does, but also where it's from. Notice what he says in verse ten or verse um, eight rather. He says, this persuasion, this thing you believe, is not from him who calls you. Now, what is he getting at there? If, 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 what does he mean when he says this persuasion, this, this inclination toward works, this inclination toward self-righteousness that some of you are embracing? He says, it's not from him who called you. Well, if it's not from him who called you, that is God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, then where's it from? And the answer is pretty simple, Paul would say, I think ultimately. If it's not from God, then it ultimately is from Satan. It's from the devil. That he is the one. Remember in John chapter eight, Jesus is he's gotten in an argument with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, if you're not familiar with them in the New Testament, the Pharisees represent basically all that is self-righteous, right? Their whole life is about Uh, obeying the law and being right before God based on their obedience and Jesus comes along and says it's not about that it's about me and they argue with him and Jesus in John chapter 8 they tell Jesus uh, that we are from our father Abraham in verse 42 Jesus said to them if God were your father you would love me for I came from God and I am here I came not of my own accord but he sent me why do you not understand what I say it is because you cannot bear to hear my word you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was, not, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because he is, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's the thing. That didn't go over well. Imagine religious people who literally have spent their whole lives perfecting perfection. Perfection. They spent their whole lives perfecting obedience to the law and perfecting, memorizing the law and perfecting, making sure everyone else gets in, in line. And then some out of work carpenter comes and says, it's not about that. It's about me. And they say, hmm, we're from our father, Abraham. Don't you know? And besides where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. He says, no, you're not. You're of your father, the devil. You're of your father, the devil. Now, what's What's important to get about that is Jesus is not indicting their badness. He's not saying to them, you guys are sinful, adulterous, thieves, you're murderers. Jesus is indicting not their badness, but their goodness. All the things that they were relying on in their life to make them acceptable to God, Jesus says those things, if you rely on those things, that actually makes you of your father, the devil, not of God, the father. You see, the problem is is because in, in the context of this thing called the gospel, our goodness is just as bad as our badness. Or strike that, our goodness is worse than our badness. How can your goodness, if you're relying on it to be saved, be worse than your badness? And the answer is this, is because if you're relying on your goodness to be saved, it's easy to think you're okay. Right? More often than not, the murderer knows he's done something. The adulterer knows he or she has done something, but the good, righteous person, they don't know. They think they're fine. They think they're doing just peachy with God, and at the end of the day, their eyes are opened, and they find out that it's not about their works, but it's about something else. If you ever read the screw tape letters, um, I'm, I'm not going to quote it this morning because I had trouble picking out which what was the best one. Basically, Screwtape Letters is about, you know, it's a fictional story by C.S. Lewis about a senior demon writing and coaching his younger, a younger demon, his nephew, on how to tempt this man. And if you read through it, the temptations are almost always and inevitably to goodness. He says, ah, I see your patient has been humble this week. Remind him of that. Remind him of how great he is because of his humility. He's been very noble in the war. He's been very virtuous of that. Remind him of how virtuous he is. Remind him of how brave he is. Remind him of how good he is. Because to the extent that he relies on his own goodness, he won't be relying on the goodness of the enemy. And the enemy to Satan is God. So where does this persuasion of self-righteousness come from? It doesn't come from God. It comes from the devil himself. Now, the last question, of course, is where does it end? Where does it take us? Where does it take someone? And then specifically, where does, where does, the, where does it end for the person who preaches self-righteousness? Or where do, and where does it end for the person who preaches the gospel? It's two different things, right? So notice verses uh, 10 and 11. Verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence that you will take no other view that it, it, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is troubling, troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So verse 10, the, the, the first thing that's interesting, in spite of all Paul's anger, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no, no other view. In other words, what Paul is telling them, he says, I know, I have confidence that in the end, the gospel is going to win. That, that in the end, those of you who have been called by God ultimately will end up following Jesus and not your own works, and you will ultimately be free. And I've, he has confidence in the end that not, not only will, will those who are, who are called by God get it, but that those who are preaching this false uh, gospel, this, this gospel of works, this gospel of self-righteousness, that they will be judged. That, that they will bear a penalty for doing so, that they will be bear a penalty. Ultimately, the person who preaches self righteousness, and certainly the person who relies on their own righteousness, will be judged. Maybe the greatest picture of that is in Matthew chapter 7. I remember, Matthew chapter 7. Let me read you part of that. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the passage where people come up to Jesus, and he says, Not everyone's going to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Chapter uh, 7, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does, the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So think about that for a second. Jesus says, not everyone who comes to me on that, that last day will enter the kingdom of heaven, and they will say the knee-jerk reaction that these people have is works. It's their self-righteousness. Did I not do all these things? Did I, not, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not heal people in your name? Did I not do all these sort of cool Christian things in your name? Didn't I do those things? And what's implicit in that passage is entering the kingdom of heaven is not about doing those things. What what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus, is to do do the will of my father. And later he would say, the will of my father is to believe in him who he sent. In other words, do you trust Jesus for your salvation? Or do you want to go before him someday and rely on your own works? Because at the end of the day, what's interesting about that passage also is that we learn that this whole thing called the gospel is about relationships. It's not about performance. That they... in other words, they say, did we not do this, and did we not do that, and did we not do this? And Jesus doesn't say, well, no, yeah, you did that, but you should have done these other things instead. What Jesus says to them is, he says, depart from me. You never knew me. You see, because the gospel is about a relationship. Not, it's not just about having your sins taken away, and it's not just about being made positively righteous, but it's actually about having a relationship with the God who made you. And, and self-righteousness and relying on works and legalism can never do that for you. So if the, so at the end of self-righteousness is judgment. What's the end of the gospel? Preaching the gospel. Interestingly enough, at least for some people, Paul says, it's persecution. It's being persecuted. Notice he says, but if I, brothers, still preach per circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, some people think that either... At one point in his life, Paul did preach circumcision, that he did tell people you need to be circumcised to be saved, and he changed, or they think that some people are just saying that about him. That's probably what's happening. People say things about preachers all the time, right? So some of the false teachers were probably saying, well, you know, Paul himself thinks this is true. And Paul says, if I'm still preaching that, why am I being persecuted then? In other words, if I'm still preaching works of the law, I wouldn't be getting in trouble at all. And I, I can tell you that's true. If, if I wanted an easy life, it would just, I, what I would do is I would stand up in front of you every Sunday and say, here are the five things you need to do this week to be acceptable to God. Just go out and do those things, and God will love you. And, and you would walk out, and you'd, be, you'd try real hard, and the harsher it, w- it was, the better. Trust me, I know this, because whenever I sort of have a, p- a sermon that calls down the thunder, people come through the pantshaker line, say, that was awesome, Pastor. I feel horrible, right? The more convicted we feel, the better the sermon must be. And so it's easy. If, so, if someone just wants an easy life as a preacher, just tell people what to do. Just give them, give them something uh, applicable, something fun, something maybe even convicting, but just give us something by which we can measure our performance and we're good. Now, if you want to get in trouble, preach the gospel. Because what the gospel says is it says that you don't have what it takes to do all those things. I could give you 10 ways to improve your marriage, but you're gonna fail on all 10 of them. I could give you five ways to be a more effective husband or wife or child, and that's cool, but it's gonna just make you guilty at the end of the day. Now, are there principles that are important, and are those good to study sometimes? Of course. But what the gospel says is all of the goodness, all of the righteousness, all of the things that we bring to the table, aren't good enough and that is offensive to some people i remember when i first started as a preacher at an older church that people were getting angry all the time and they would come in my office and say tommy I'm, we're so tired of hearing the gospel just tell us what to do and i was young and stupid i'd just cry I'd, i don't know what that i don't know what else to do i don't know what else to tell you And then I started reading a book by a guy named Charles Bridges. He published in 1835 called The Christian Ministry, and it opened my eyes to something. And at some point in the book, he says, young pastor, he says, the gospel is always either hardening or softening people's hearts. There's no neutrality. That whenever the gospel is being preached, whenever you say that it's Jesus and not you, that, that it's his works and not your works, that, that people are either softened by that, that the Holy Spirit uses that to change them, or they're hardened by that. That there's no difference. And so that helped make, that made a lot of sense. And so you preach the gospel, and you take your, your licks, I guess, is what you do. That's what Paul would say. And it's a hardening or softening. And the other thing, it's because the cross is a scandal. He says... If I preach to you works, then the offense of the cross is removed. Now Paul says that as if it's a positive thing that the cross is an offense. And the word there is a the scandalon in the Greek. In other words, the scandal of the cross is removed. And the scandal of the cross is this, is that it's not our works, it's not our goodness, but in fact, it's the goodness of Jesus imputed to us or credited to us on the cross. Paul says, if I just told you what to do, that would be gone. And so I thought I'd close this morning. By get basically reading to you, put it in, putting all of this whole thing in context by reading to you what uh, Martin Luther has said about this passage. So hear this by way of conclusion. Martin Luther says this. He says, There is nothing that vexes the devil more than the proclamation of the gospel. For this takes away from him the mask of God and shows him up for what he is, is not God but the devil. Therefore, it is unavoidable that when the gospel flourishes, the stumbling block of the cross will follow. Otherwise, it is sure that the devil has not really been attacked, but has only been gently caressed. If he is really attacked, he does not remain quiet, but begins to raise a terrible disturbance and create havoc everywhere. Therefore, if Christians want to keep the word, they must not be offended or frightened when they see the devil breaking his reins and running wild, or the whole world in tumult, or tyrants in rage, or sects arising. But they should know for certainty that these are signs not of terror but of joy, as Christ interpreted them when he said, rejoice and be glad. Therefore, may the stumbling block of the cross never be taken away, which is what would happen if it were to preach what the ruler of the world and his members would like to hear, namely, the righteousness of works. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would, um, you would enable us to see through our own self-righteousness. All of us have it, all of us struggle with it, And that more and more as a result of today, as a result of the Lord's Supper, as a result of of everything that's happened here and that will happen, uh, you would wean us from our self-righteousness and more and more onto dependence and reliance on the righteousness of Jesus. In his name we pray these things. Amen.